Good afternoon, everyone. We're going to go ahead and get started right on time here at 4.30 in the Eastern time zone, but good day to everyone else. Uh, for those that I have not met, thank you so much for being a part of this conversation today. My name is Carrie Higgins Bigelow. I am the CEO and founder of Living HR. We're the work agency. For those that have never heard of us, we're all about humanizing work so that everybody has the true opportunity to be cared for and live up to their potential at work. I have a long story as to why I started Living HR, but today that's really not what it's about. So I'm just gonna get us going. And I mentioned it only to let you know that the conversation about equity and humanity at work really matters to me. So before we get this uh, show underway, I have to personally thank each of the panelists, our partners, the Opportunity Agenda and Mesh Diversity, as well as the Living HR team for the work it took to keep bringing together these monthly listening and learning event series, uh, work now and in the future. Yes. I also wanna thank each of you for what I presume is not only your attendance, but your open mind. Uh, we have historically created this space for dialogues about how we can come together to create some real change in the world of work. Today, uh, we'll do that, including a discussion around real social change, uh, especially for the black men and women who are fighting for justice right now. Uh, specifically, we'll be having a conversation at the front end with Dr. Lino Karamuncheri, co-founder of Mesh Diversity, and Ellen Buckman, the president of the Opportunity Agenda. We're then going to dive into a really big, broad conversation to learn from all of our panelists with Amanda Herring, uh, Living HR's brilliant creative leader, aptly titled RVP of Creative. Amanda also has a few things to remind all of us of in order to keep our time together today respectful and meaningful. Amanda, your turn. Off mute. <laughs> okay. All right. Thanks, Carrie. So um, as Carrie said, thank you everyone for being here. Um, I'm Amanda Herring, Vice President of Creative at Living HR, and I'll be joining Carrie in hosting this incredible group of thought leaders who will take part in the important dialogue to be had today. So before we jump in, a few housekeeping things. Um, a benefit of a virtual event is flexibility. So we want to encourage you to take breaks, stretch, let the dog out, let life happen. Um, no guilt, that's kind of our, our motto, no guilt, um, live your life and um, be as present as you can. Uh, we are using Zoom, so uh, participants won't be able to, uh, we won't be able to hear or see your faces, but we can see your names and we encourage you to participate via chat, offer your thoughts, um, commentary, and support for our panelists. It's a really tough job in these virtual events to essentially talk to yourself. So um, anything that uh, you can do to continue to support them and um, make comments as they go, uh, that would be super appreciated. If you have any questions as we go along, there's a Q&A feature at the bottom of your screen. Submit a question and um, we will be covering those in a Q&A session uh, during the event and um, asking different panelists to answer your questions. Uh, the majority of the event will feature real-time virtual um, illustration on the majority of your screen. So 
our friends at Drawing Booth are going to be bringing our words to life as we go. And we will share this final piece with you too. And you should be able to see panelists as they speak at the top or the side of your screen. Should be able to adjust it a little bit, but for the most part, um, I think a lot of us are thankful to not have our, our faces huge on the screen. And um, so we'll have that illustration going as we go. Uh, most importantly, this event features an open dialogue, uh, an honest discussion, and um, is a place of respectful exchanges. So as I mentioned, we do encourage you to ask questions and Q&A in the chat, but um, you know, this is not a place that will tolerate disrespectful, abusive, or hateful commentary of any kind. So um, we'll monitor comments and questions, and if anything of that nature is shared, please know that we will screenshot it for accountability purposes, and um, these people will immediately be kicked out of the event. So um, on a positive note, if you have any feedback about the event, we see that as a positive thing. So please uh, share that with us after the event at info at livinghr.com. And um, with that, I will kick it back over to Carrie so that we can get started. Thanks, Amanda. All right, so let's not waste any time. And uh, I'd like to really get started and get into this conversation with you, Lino and Ellen. Um, first, before we really get into this, can you tell us a little bit just about what your organization specifically do to support social justice um, and diversity, equity, and inclusion work? Um, I'm gonna start with you, Lino. <laughs> Um, so what we have done is taken the 30 years of, of DNI work and research, uh, matched together with 30 years of emotional intelligence, neuroscience, and built a platform that actually allows organizations to systematize uh, diversity, inclusion, and, and anti-oppression. Anti so um, the, the way we kind of see the world here that personal interaction thing that I think a lot of people have hoped that they could do it just from training alone. And, you know, training without a systematized process really doesn't do much. So what we allow you to do is actually make the steps that you want to make and, and, and build it in a way that you can focus on, on the work that you're doing, but also drive inclusion and, and anti-oppression too. Awesome. Thanks so much. Um, Helen, uh, tell us about the opportunity agenda and how this ties to your mission as a nonprofit. Happy to do that. And first, if I may, let me um, share gratitude with you, Carrie. I want to recognize Carrie Higgins Bigelow and the Living HR team for inviting me and my organization, the opportunity agenda here today. Um, my director of HR and operations, an exceptional leader by the name of Erica Williams, shared with me that you had reached out to her based on what you knew about our organization and our work towards social justice and toward um, promoting equal opportunity for everyone. And we were just so touched um, by hearing from you. So I want to say thank you um, for this wonderful opportunity to share. Um, let me answer your question now just by saying that I've already um, come across um, common ground with, with Lino. Systematization is something that we at the Opportunity Agenda believe in as well, but we do it um, toward communication and doing more effective values-based, values-driven communication. 
Um, we consider ourselves a social justice communication lab. You can learn more at opportunityagenda.org about our organization. And really briefly, what that means um, is we are creating both so that we can learn as well as so that our partners can learn, hence the lab, ways in which we can move hearts and minds through developing narratives that are in many respects alternatives to dominant narrative frames that promote injustice. And we do that primarily with a focus on immigrant human rights, pathways from poverty, and reform for the justice system, always through a racial equity lens, a gender equity lens, and a lens toward equality for all. I can leave it there and share more about our core competence yeah. through the conversation. Thank That's you. Awesome. Thanks so much, Alan. We're really grateful to have you. And thanks to everyone out there that um, also contributed to their cause. Uh, it was totally optional, uh, as you all know, but if you do see the uh, opportunity to get involved, it's a great way to do that. Can you tell us a little bit about the Justice Out Loud effort that you have going on right now? Yeah, of course, happy to. So every year the team selects a theme that we really wanna try and focus on through our hashtags and through our uplifting efforts and through our ways in which we try and promote, as I said, justice in the areas that I've outlined. And you know, with everything punctuating the need to be as direct as we can be and as effective as we can be, particularly in the weeks that we are currently finding ourselves in, we found that Justice Out Loud actually made a lot of sense as a way to really try and counter narratives that are promoting alternatives, I'll just call it, um, to uh, equity uh, and equality and justice for all. And in many respects, not just alternatives, but actually the opposite. Um, stereotypes on the, um, in the best case scenario and hate in the worst case scenario. And so for us, it became really imperative this year that we figure out a theme where we could use our, um, ability and our competencies to promote that as best we can. And at the Opportunity Agenda, um, we do that really um, quickly in the following ways. Um, we do that through our research. We have a Cracker Jack research team that is focused on whether it's understanding where hearts and minds are through public opinion and thinking together about where we, um, how and where we reach audiences that we want to be able to more effectively communicate with, or whether it's research around how our society right now is currently representing um, mainly communities of color from the research that we've done through um, popular culture. So just a quick example on that, one of our most popular resources on our website a report that we wrote back in 2011 on how black men and boys are represented in popular culture um, revealed that at that time, um, black men and boys were um, portrayed um, very narrowly as violent, as people who were not wholesome human beings, fathers, students, and the like, but instead individuals in, um, more invested in violence in different ways. And so we took that research and not only did we share that story, but we built out a set of recommendations so that um, folks that share our values could really consider what to do to change that and to think together about how we can focus on um, changing that representation for the better. You know, there's a lot to say about how we're doing that, but there's mm -hmm. even more to say, and this is my second point, 
about how our partners are doing that because one of the things that, and I joked with you when we spoke yesterday, Carrie, um, that we are is very much behind the scenes as an organization because, mm -hmm. and that's the way we wanted it. We believe in centering um, folks who are on the front lines and helping them and supporting them be as effective as possible and making certain that the stories that they are telling about whether it's that representation, what it is and what it should be, or whether it's the systems that have frankly failed communities of color because they've been um, you know, built in such a way that they are not, their lives are not um, the first priority, whether it's the healthcare system as laid bare by the COVID-19 um, pandemic, or whether it's the policing system of injustice in our country, or whether it's something else. We as an organization believe in developing tools and providing training so that our partners who share our values can be as effective as possible um, in again, shifting that dominant narrative frame and creating a new one so that their stories can underscore why justice um, and said out loud, as we are saying this year, is something we all need to reach for. Yeah, thanks, Alan. That's really helpful. And I think it shows just the depth and the magnitude of the, the challenge that we're facing and actually undoing all these years of what is so unjust. And so um, thanks for sharing that. Uh, Lena, can you talk to us a little bit about why this matters to you so much uh, uh, individually as a person, uh, just your story? I, I guess I would have entered into it when I was about 20 years old uh, because of 20 years of racism. <laughs> that would have been the, the simplest entry point. Um, it became clear after, when I graduated, my doctorate was focused in anti-racism work, anti very specifically. But after working in the field for a couple years, it, there was a politics behind anti-racism that I became uncomfortable for myself as a man of color because it was easy for me to focus on race. But, you know, my sisters don't get to wake up in the morning and say, gee, I think I'll just deal with my race today. So it was important for me to work in the intersectionality between race and gender and sexuality and all of those pieces. And I think what you find and, and why there is so much meaning for me personally, it's, it's become quite evident over the last two weeks. Um, the, the outcry that you've heard pretty much across the globe isn't just coming from people of color. And it's not just coming from black folks. I think the reality is that, that we are all part of a very, very ugly system that happens to be invisible. And part of how it functions is you're not supposed to see it. So, you know, the, the guy waiting outside the gay bar to beat somebody up is easy to understand. Um, the, the person with the hood on burning the cross is easy to understand. The, the guy who beats up his wife is easy to understand. These people are the simplest piece of the puzzle. The problem is that this system does not work unless good, kind-hearted, ethical, moral people are taking part in it every day without seeing their role. And what happened in, in the last couple of weeks, whether it was you know, Arbery's murder, whether it was George Floyd, I think Amy Cooper, for those of you who saw that video, for a lot of my friends, 
and colleagues who are white for for them it was amy cooper it, it wasn't it wasn't george floyd because she oscillated her tone of voice her inflection framed panic where there was none used her gender and her race as a tool to apply his race as a weapon against him it was violent it was violating it was obscene and i think everybody who saw that there were there were blinders that were taken off that they that they could have their whole lives and never see it yeah uh, and and the the piece with with george floyd is there was such a degree of callousness in what what occurred and there was it wasn't anger there was no fury he and whether or not you believe he intended to kill him, he knew he was torturing the man. And in large part because he could. And so if you're a human being who is decent and has ethics and has morals, it's difficult for you to turn a blind eye to that. Mm -hmm. And so part of the reason that this means something for me now differently than it did three, three weeks ago is I, I honestly have a different degree of hope yeah, uh, you know, let's let's be clear. The Confederate flag isn't flying in at NASCAR races today. Yeah, the civil rights movement didn't do that. Right. So that's everything. Yeah. 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 Agree. Yeah, we're starting to actually undo some of the historical references that got us to where we are, and so it's so powerful. I think for all of us to to see that. Um, Ellen, what, tell us a little bit about why this is your uh, line of work and so to speak, quotes. Yeah, before I, before I make it personal though, I just think Lino's explanation. I, I, wanna, I wanna thank you for it, Lino, and yeah, pull that so thread a little bit more, I can't resist because, you know, at the Opportunity Agenda, we believe that we really need to tell the story of the systemic bias, the systemic racism, if you will, Obviously, the outfront racism that is often articulated in hate speech and in the um, gowns that um, Lino referenced of members of the KKK is easier for people to understand because it's, it's, it's in your face. Um, but what gets left out a lot of times is the conversation about systemic bias and systemic racism. And for those who don't know the video that um, Lino was talking about, Amy Cooper is the woman in Central Park who was walked excuse me, walking her dog off leash, and a man by the name of Christian Cooper, unrelated, she white, he black, um, asked her as he was watching birds to please put her dog um, as required on leash. And rather than comply, and rather than, you know, maybe give him a snarky look, she threatened him um, and said she was about to and did call the New York Police Department. Now I'm raising this and pulling this thread to underscore the great point that Lino made. It's, it's also why I do this work. It's to really break down the systems that have either created barriers um, for people to reach opportunity, or in this case, resulted in a woman who, as a white woman, was very in touch, whether um, implicitly or whether consciously, with the fact that the New York City Police Department has been notoriously um, profiling African-American, mainly men and young men, um, for many, many years, 
um, and targeting them uh, on the basis of their race. That's been documented. And God knows right now with everything that is facing our country and the acknowledgement um, of how George Floyd and Ahmed Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and so many others have been targeted by police departments because of their race, unquestionably the conversation is now changing. And, and as I like to say, the elephant is um, in the middle of the center of the room is coming forward because folks are consciously realizing that the system really has been built. Um, and if you know the history of our country and the history of the KKK and its involvement in building police departments around our country, you know, um, so that the goals that I'm mentioning to profile African-Americans and assume guilt as opposed to innocence because of their race um, is what Amy Cooper was leaning into that day. Um, and that is a story now that is being told in a way that before that happened, quite frankly, as an organization that's been very focused on telling that story, um, hasn't been punctuated quite the way that it is being now. Um, and so if anything good can be said about that moment and about what is happening right now, it's that the consciousness um, uh, that the incident has raised and as a result, the activism and the uprising and the justice out loud that is being called for by so many people is, is actively something that we are all experiencing. I also though wanna make a distinction between that and the pain and the communication that is also happening about that um, because that's a distinct kind of communication that also needs space and the grieving and the articulation of the victimization of whether it's the families of Mr. Floyd and what they are articulating or African-American and others in the street. Um, it's really important to talk about that in a way um, that again, as Dr. King said, bends toward justice and really figures out together how we can find solutions for new systems and not only um, bring sympathy for those individual stories as important as that is. So I wanted just to pull that thread and thank Lino for bringing it up in that way because that is something that our organization is intensively focused on the criminalization of individuals of color for who they are and there are other things that we do um, related to other issues um, that I can talk about and expand upon more if there's time um, so that we're breaking down that conversation, always leading with values, always starting with a point where we can actually meet people, always understanding that the perceptions arise because of the realities that people face and we need to together bring them to a different reality that's aspirational and that centers them in the values that they themselves want to see. And you know what? I think Amy Cooper probably has those values. At the same at the same time, she is a product of a system that has given unfair and unequal treatment to, and you know, whites um, have benefited from that, as you said at the start of this conversation, Carrie, um, since the beginning of time in this country. Why do I do this work? Um, it's really because I'm conscious of of that. I um, I really understand that I have and have benefited from the systems as a white person um, that I am describing. Um, I understand that more now than I ever have um, in my life. I also understand that as someone who for the first time um, in you know many, many years was able to marry my partner um, last year. Um, we've been together 25 years and we actually were thumbing our nose at the institution of marriage, but now my wife and I are proudly married and as a, as a member of a disadvantaged group, I'm adding that to the mix because you asked 
and thank you yeah. for the question. Of course. Um, around, uh, around how, thank you, around how really all of this, everything that we do, all politics are personal, as they say, um, really needs to start at the heart of the heart. And so for me, what that means is making sure that those systems, whether it's the marriage equality um, fight um, and the system of, of the of marriage as we know it and how that has changed because of narrative and policy shifts, or whether it's the system of injustice that right now is front and center, and that is how um, our policing systems in our country um, are, you know, unfairly just doesn't quite do it in describing it, but are um, hatefully um, targeting African Americans and people of color. That's really why I'm here. It's why I'm proud to represent this organization and work with the people that I do every day. Thanks, Ellen. It's interesting, and not in the good, interesting way, but in terms of uh, how somebody becomes a racist or doesn't, you know, is it in your uh, in your research and in the work that you've done, Lino? Is that um, all because of the systems, or is that more also because of the narrative that's been created in their own lives, or what is it that either creates someone that is born not a racist into a racist and then conversely how does somebody not end up that way um it's a really interesting question there are a lot of different perspectives on this um i'll approach it from a from a science-based perspective because uh, from a political perspective like if, if you're if you're a, a heavy sociologist who is in academic space the the kind of main 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 frame answer is all white people are racist from the second you are born um i personally find that untenable for a number of different reasons um pretty much the only reason i can do this kind of work with white folks is because from grade one until grade seven a little white kid named henry never called me a packy um you know we had a fight every week but that word never came out. So I learned in my little child mind, some white folks can be safe for me, right? And kids aren't stupid. When, when all of the other kids are saying it, you realize, oh, the words there just came out because they're angry. So they're, they're, we have to draw distinctions in, in the words that we use. And when you say racist, the ist implies something. There's an activity in it. Um, and, and, racism isn't necessarily an active thing. It can be completely passive. So my, my suggestion in interpreting this is that when you access the system, you're effectively being the ist, whether you want to or not. It, it can be a passive activity. It's, it doesn't have to come from intent. But when you bridge that space and are actively working as an ally, there are, there are some challenges with using the, the ist in the terminology. Um, I, I sort of equate it to, to potential energy for anybody who rem remembers high school physics. You know, if, if you have something that stands like this, it's got more potential energy than something like this. Okay, that so, I remember. Yeah, so white, white, <laughs> folks, white folks got an awful lot of potential energy when it comes to racism, yeah. right? You, you, you can cause an awful lot of grief by doing very little. Um, it, it just doesn't work that way upstream. Um, I could call you a cracker or a honky all day and all night until I went, I don't know what brown and, and red would do, purple. I could, I could scream it to the high heavens, but you're, it's unlikely that you are going to 
feel bad about your skin color, want to distance yourself from heritage, family, or culture. The likelihood is you would get mad at me because it's discriminatory behavior. But it, it's the it's the ist pieces that 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 trouble people. So I think the way I would frame that is we have a system where if you are white, you access that system every day, whether you recognize it or not. So the easiest analogy would be the system is the water and we are the fish. And when you swim out front, you don't have to pay attention to your wake. And all the other fish are swimming in your wake. It doesn't make you a bad fish, but they all got to swim in your wake. And so are all white people racist? Nope. Do all white people have the capacity for it? Yep. Uh, is it likely that all white people will access it and, and be the ist at some point during your life? Yes. Does it make you a bad person? No. <laughs> so, so how's that for a clear answer? I like it. Uh, it's actually a, a really great way to kind of frame it up for, for everyone, I think. While we're on that topic, um, talk to me about privilege a little bit. Um, I, I, can, I, can, I, can, I can sum it up in a, in a really clear nutshell. When I wake up in the morning and look in the mirror, there is never any point in my life where I've ever looked in the mirror and thought, gee, what kind of crap am I going to have to mediate today because of the gender that I, that I hold? I've never had to think, how, oh, what kind of hoops do I have to jump through as a heterosexual male? None of those things ever enter into my processing, period. But every day, and in ways that are subtle and sometimes not so subtle, I have to filter what kind of junk do I have to mediate today because of the color of my skin. Um, the other day, I, this you, you can't make this kind of stuff up. We're in the middle of we're in the middle of COVID, and we finally made this decision because our our twelve year old uh, daughter is going squirrely at home that her friend wanted her to come over and social distance and everything, but go to her pool. I'm like, okay, there you go. She comes home. And later in the evening, she's like, Dado, um, I was having this conversation and so-and-so's so mom was telling me about a story from her life. And she's saying, yeah, when we were little, if someone was brown, we used to call them packies. Now, do I have to have this conversation with my 12-year-old? Is this something I'm planning on doing for my, for my Tuesday night? Really? Yeah. So, you know, it, yeah, this stuff slams you in the side of the head half the time because you're, you're not always prepared for it. So privilege is just not, not having to, to, to think about it. It, it. it may be even simpler. Privilege is being able to opt out. You know, if, if you're female, where do you get to go to escape sexism? If you're LGBTQ, where do you get to go to escape heterosexism, homophobia? Like, if, if, you're, if you're gay, you don't even get to go home necessarily because your parents may not be okay with it. Do you know, do you know what I mean? Like, I always get to go home at least, you know? So social oppression is a lack of option. And privilege is the exact opposite of that. You, 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 you have multitudes of choice. Thank you for that explanation. Ellen, anything you wanted to add to that? No, I think Lino did it beautifully. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's not even a choice. It's, it's not actually um, presented that way because the systems are built in such a way that 
um, we who are privileged don't have to worry about the choice. Yeah. Um, and, you know, for whatever reason, you know, one thing just to throw in, and um, we have a bunch of tools on our website that help folks to talk about this point, um, including a guide that we just updated with everything that's going on now, eight lessons for talking about race, racism and, and racial justice. And one of the things that we try and encourage folks to do, always starting with values, is to present common values as a bridge and not a bypass. And what we mean by that is that we want to open conversations um, because I'm hearing that that's probably what Lino you had to do when you were talking to your kids, your daughter about this and perhaps her friend. No, I just told um, her not to be so sensitive. <laughs> <laughs> I gotta say, um, I know you did not. <laughs> we maybe, maybe so. I, I, I would bet you did a little more than that. But um, you know, we we say, look, start with shared values because they help to emphasize society's role in you know what's going on in affording a fair chance for everyone. Um, that doesn't mean avoid the conversation. Um, don't bypass the conversation, have the discussion, link it, link it so that folks understand why we are where we are, where, why the privilege, as you said, as you asked about, is where it is and link back to how racial exclusion, gender exclusion, whatever the exclusion, um, in many cases is a byproduct uh, of the system and the experience that that individual might be having is a result of that. And we suggest bridging from those shared values to the roles in the case of racial equity um, and inclusion so that we can really talk about why it's important that we fulfill those values for everyone, which is the goal of the conversations that we're trying to have. Change that dominant frame so that folks can understand that it is in everyone's interest, including the interests of white folks, um, that we do that and that we move those hearts and minds in that way. You know, a lot of times folks get mired in skepticism um, because they aren't able to acknowledge those values at the outset. Um, a lot of times, as I mentioned before, when you're thinking about um, what we're consuming in culture and in the context of media representation or television shows, I think a pretty strong majority at one point, I think it was almost 80% of people above the age of 35 got their information from television. And that doesn't just mean the news. Mm -hmm. um, so skepticism promotion um, is something that our, our, our society gravitates to. Cases and controversy, drama, that sort of thing. And breaking through that has got to start with values and it's got to start with thinking about how we can bridge to people as opposed to bypass that conversation. We've got a lot of workplace leaders on the call. If you're thinking about them uh, and what really they can do and why this is happening in their workplace and um, why the efforts around traditional diversity, equity, and inclusion haven't happened. I mean, you know, obviously there's the weight of what's existed externally that now has infiltrated the workplace in terms of its prongs and you know I think workplace leaders are obviously really struggling with how to respond and what conversation to have and what they should do future wise to make sure that they are standing up for what's right and for their people um, you know I'm not gonna uh, talk about the ones that aren't uh, but for the ones that are um, what is it that they should or could be doing 
right now? And then longer term, what does that look like um, from your lens? Either I'll, one. I'll let you go first. Um, wow, it's a great question. You know, as, as a white woman who's leading an organization I, I, of racial um, justice and um, social justice, and that is our focus, I think about this all the time and I think about the, again, as we were just talking about the special privilege that I have. Um, I also think about the obligation that I have. Um, I think about that a lot um, and how I can really express that obligation to those that work on my team, to those that we partner with and, you know, in keeping with our Justice Out Loud hashtag and theme so that we're doing it in such a way that's explicit. So I guess that's point one. I think really trying to find the voice for that um, and making certain that that voice um, is pronouncing the values of doing that as much as possible as leaders. Um, even if it's small things, um, it doesn't have to be an all staff email all the time to do it. It can be small things. It can be things like getting on the phone and reaching out to um, people of color who are on your team specifically in this um, conversation right now about policing African-American um, staff of color, just to ask them how they are. Um, I value everyone and I cannot imagine, quite frankly, as I have said to some of them, how it must feel to be in this period along with how our history has brought us to where we are carrying that burden. And I'm doing the best that I can to understand that as well as to try and do something about it, both personally and professionally. So you know, simple things and simple articulations of support are, are really, really important. I also wanna stress that we, especially as white leaders, don't place a burden on them to too great of a degree to explain. Um, that is something um, that is up to us to listen, observe, and hear, um, as well as acknowledge um, that that's up to us to do. Um, and, you know, like we were just talking about, the system has privileged us. Well, one would hope that those of us who have been privileged would um, understand that, think about it, and understand that we have an obligation to hear um, and, and see those who are around us. Um, thirdly, I think really centering um, our values around, you know, what we are doing to uplift um, leaders of color and making sure um, that we're doing that in specific ways thinking about our leadership development programs, making sure that we are providing access um, to them, making sure that the work um, that we value um, and that we hold, and I have a lot of examples of that, um, uh, is led by um, staff of color, leaders of color, um, and that input really, and whether this is um, staff or partners or others that, that folks are working with, we're considering those who are directly impacted by the experiences that we're trying to change. In our, in our work, it's the narrative that we're trying to um, create. And so not waiting to be transactional, if you will, and um, use them as mouthpieces or messengers, but instead really get their input on what the strategy should be, because chances are they as, as directly impacted folks have a better idea of that than the non-directly impacted folks. So starting from, hey, what should the discourse look like and how should we get there? And then 
thinking together about once that discourse in our case it's communication so that's why i'm talking about this piece um is ready or if it's a you know whether it's a social media campaign or whether it's some other more traditional media campaign or something else um, is involving of them um, through, from start to finish. And then I would also say um, that, you know, as I mentioned before, being proactive and asking for input, um, you know, every step of the way uh, is, is so important. I have to be clear that I can't act upon everything. I mean, it's impractical to, 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 to say that I can do that for lots of reasons. However, it is never impractical to listen. And I don't know if you're a Brene Brown fan, but one of the things that she talks a lot about um, is how there's enough empathy to go around the world many, many times. You don't have to have, as I call it, the empathy Olympics. Um, we can actually listen to each other, empathize with one another many, many times a day and really learn how to grow with each other so that we're supporting one another. So I would say thematically, those are the things that I really try um, and do. Obviously not always successfully, not everyone is perfect. And so with this pressure comes, I think, um, you know, generosity of heart and gentleness, both in spirit um, directed toward myself along with toward others, because we all make mistakes. While at the same time, it's really imperative that we recognize that and try as hard as we can to do what I'm describing. Lena, what do you think? Um, there's just a, a couple things I'd add. Um, you know, I think what happens in organizations, and in particular when you have well-meaning, well-meaning leaders who, who are desperate and, and, and want to see this done, I think there is this fallback sometimes to you know, do we have people of color on staff? Do we, is there somebody gay on staff who can, who can lead this? Um, just picking on racism, it's been around for 500 years. Right. You know, if I'm, if I'm, and, and I, I want to be really, really clear about this. When I say this, I'm not being self-serving. If there are, you know, qualified people who live next door, you go to them. Uh, but there's a degree of expertise that you need for this stuff. And, and what, what happens, unfortunately, I mean, if I was building a house, I'd get an architect and I'd get somebody who knows how to like hammer stuff. You know, I'm not going to wander out into the street and say, hey, anybody want to build me a house? Can you imagine what staff would say if their CEO said, hey, we need a new CFO. Someone hop on LinkedIn and ask anybody if they have interest in money. It, it's, it's asinine on the face of it. But it, it would seem these days all you need to have the DNI portfolio in an organization is to be black or female or gay. And it's, it's, it's dangerous. It's, it's really, really dangerous. And then oftentimes we, we put the responsibility for explaining this stuff at the foot of people who are being violated by it every day. Right. Um, you know, it, the simplest example, and. And, and this will make sense. I'm, I'm going to try and pick one that, that, that more people on the line. I've been trying to look at the names. It sounds like there are, are more females or people who'd identify as female on, on this. So I'm going to pick on the women for a second. I want everybody on, on this webinar. Think about the last time you had a guy in your life say something sexist. Not the overt, ugly, brutal stuff. Just the stupid stuff. And if you took the time, particularly through somebody in your work life, 
if you took the time and the effort to say, kind of sexist, didn't like it, would appreciate if you didn't do it again. How often would you have heard, didn't mean it that way, you shouldn't take it that way, you're being too sensitive, and if he had a sense of humor, must be that time of the month. Yep. Right? So, yeah, every time. So you got to deal with this nonstop. So here's the kicker. Are you really effective with getting to try and get what you're trying to sell? Because most of the time, he's not buying what you're selling. This is the problem with privilege. You don't need to. So the after effect of that is when you go home and in the safety of your home, when there's no one around, you'd be alone with your thoughts. You run through this. Oh, I swear to God, I should have. The next time he does, I'm gonna. Does this sound familiar? Because in the right context, that's called ruminative preoccupation. It's the symptom of post-traumatic stress disorder. Because sexism is traumatic. Racism is traumatic. Heterosexism, homophobia are traumatic. These are not simple things to be played at. But because well-meaning organizational leaders do not understand the depth of this, it's like, hey, Joe, you got an interest? You got the portfolio. Do a good job. Let's have an ethnic lunch. You know, I've eaten a lot of Japanese food in my life. I don't know Japanese people that well. I like the food, but that's about the extent of what ethnic lunches do. So I think that the, the, the real challenge, and I think the last couple of weeks have really borne some pretty amazing fruit. I think there's a lot of wonderful people out there who, who are starting to realize I've been a real part of this problem for a very long time. Mm-hmm. And, and what you need is for those good, kind-hearted, ethical, moral people to say, okay, this far, no further, how can I take part in it? It's the, it's the, challenge, it's the challenge of education. It's part of, so on, on our platform, and there's, a, there's a, a pile of information on our platform that's free. You don't have to even put your credit card in. You can just sign in and, and go in. And we've, we've designed an LMS that there's different kinds of learning and, and the fall down with, with diversity education for the most part, it's been taken, the approach has been tra- training, you know, yeah. I, you can train someone to put a barbecue together. You know, that's, that's very, it's, it's a one plus one equals two activity. Yeah. It's very, it's very cognitive, but the problem is, is that diversity, inclusion, anti-racism, anti-oppression there. It, it's not a one plus one equals two proposition because human beings are involved and everything goes non-linear, right? There's still a science that's pretty exacting, but it's, it's hard to comprehend. So what we're trying to do is create avenues where you can explore interactionally so you can develop leadership because you understand what the interaction is. So you can do personal development so you can understand the interaction, all from metrics that are based on your own assessments. But then we can have the master classes too, and we call them master classes. So you can actually learn those complex things that YouTube is not particularly good at giving you. <laughs> you can get some real information. No, yeah. you can get some, some real not stuff. Not how to make slime. <laughs> yeah, well said. Can I just quickly add to that? Sure. Um, I, I just think that one of the implicit things that we know said was the reminder that no community of color is monolithic and it's it's something to keep in mind it you know it's it's something to think about when we are interacting with folks of color along with our own biases which we all have and to understand that going in likewise um uh the the tokenism that comes from from that um which is something that i think 
having an awareness of it as leaders is really important. I think two really concrete things though that I, you asked for concrete so that I would recommend to folks in these in um, work environments that are trying to really do the right thing um, and think about this more in practice is so Lino mentioned finding an architect. Well, if you need an architect, start with minority businesses and think about how you can support them as opposed to putting out um, a request for an LOI broadly um, and seeing what you get. Really think about strategically how you can reach out to businesses led by individuals of color. Um, and there are networks that I know you're aware of um, that you can start with. Um, and then secondly, one of the things that we're doing actually right now at the Opportunity Agenda that is both scary and daunting as well as really exciting is an internal cultural assessment. We're working with a consultant. If people are interested in me connecting you with her, I'd be happy to. You can you know, get with me offline so that we can do, as I said before, better and making sure that the values that we're training and writing guidance for, for our partners to use, um, are aligned with um, how we're pronouncing them internally. And, and this consultant is really helping us take a hard look at ourselves um, to figure out what we need to do better at. One of my staff mentioned this kind of off the cuff, I can't remember where, um, that it's not enough um, to, you know, just, you know, work on, it's important, but not enough to just really promote um, hiring um, folks of color, something we try and do. However, it is um, deeper th than that, and we need to take an internal look at how we're fostering an environment of inclusivity for them and for everyone with the understanding that we have an obligation to do that. Another kind of interesting piece to this to me is that um, we have been talking about, you know, hashtag me too, and there's been all these other efforts that have kind of come into the workplace. And, you know, I, what, what I'm concerned about is the future of making sure that this doesn't lose steam, right? Like, I don't want to see um, these kinds of, because it's to our earlier point of how systemic these issues are, if the organization itself is a system, the all these different moments and experiences and issues that are built into that system's culture are have to be completely undone. And so, you know, in terms of hiring, like you mentioned, Ellen, that's an obvious one in terms of opportunity, in terms of pay, and like if you don't look at absolutely everything in the system beyond looking at just you know, diversity training, to your point, Lino, like, that's one part, you know, and that doesn't get to that organization's challenges. And to your point, Ellen, culturally, I think, you know, what we've been trying to do is look at what is genuinely how that organization behaves, and what are they doing in that behavior that either leaves people behind, or bring, rises people up. And are they bringing people into a conversation that is different than the one that they've had historically and how do they live into that culture? And that to me is embedded in the entire employee experience. It's in how we attract talent to want to work for us. It's in how we hire. It's in how we market our talent brand and talk about who we are as an organization. It's in our it's in our everything. It's woven in absolutely every termination decision, every tiny little moment. And so I think that's why the, the, what we've done potentially hasn't worked is because 
you know, we look at it as, oh, there was an issue. You know, I've heard this a million times. If I get another call because somebody got a discrimination case and now they want to do some sort of effort to change it, like I, I, that's, you know, just putting a Band-Aid on something, it doesn't do anything to fix it. And so, you know, I'm curious, like, what are the things that within that whole system as an organization, you feel like right now people really should go after and like how do they look at the whole system and we do a pretty deep analysis and we walk through employee journey moments with the employees and we capture a lot of insight but i know you have another way to build some awareness in the organization yeah i mean the the crux of the question is at the heart of why we do what we do and the way we do it um you know 30 years of of D&I, the, the, ch the challenge has been, you know, po positive intent aside, we've kind of relied on this, this echo chamber on the internet of things that, that get called best practices. And in, in large part, bear in mind also that until the last two weeks, corporate America was not in a place where you wanted to talk about the real stuff, which is power dynamics, power imbalances, and all of those things, right? So these yeah. best practices were always fairly comfortable measures, almost always kind of directed at, at white women moving forward, because that benefits white women and white men for the most part, right? So there have been some ongoing challenges because of the measures that were used for, for the simple reason that people don't trust you because you say you can be trusted. People trust you because you show them you're trustworthy. And when you enact diversity initiatives, well, we'll just, we're going to work on women right now. It says an awful lot to other people, right? So that, that challenge itself brings a very, very murky problem into very specific relief. When you do real work, number one, you can't pick and choose. You, much like the Black Lives Matter movement, you might have to pay particular attention to a group that is specifically in need, right? Because your house is burning down. But it doesn't mean you ignore all the other ones while you're paying attention to it, right? So part, part of the challenge and what you have to do is Im, Im, imagine an organization that tries really, really hard, does the training, does uh, leadership development, really, really working at building leaders who understand power dynamics. If I'm a male leader, I understand. I can't just be in civil because I'm in a bad mood. My female employees may experience me as sexist. So I got to mediate those things. You build that and then you continue hiring the way you've always hired and it's a crapshoot. 30% of the time, you're going to bring in another jerk. So part of what we have done in leveraging emotional intelligence as the metric, uh, part of what, what we've done, it was six years of design in developing a process that would bypass the junk. So as, as a, for instance, a lot of the folks on this call do um, employment surveys, uh, engagement surveys. There are some fundamental failings in engagement surveys. Any engagement survey you've ever done that's a one to five, one to 10. Well, number one, if it's a one to five survey, you almost always get threes, fours, and fives. They're designed for that, right? But when you do a Likert scale, which is what those surveys are, you're, you're essentially trying to get information that's not generally knowable, like how people feel, and make them not only knowable, but measurable, right? 
So if I said, hey, Carrie, how do you feel today on a scale from one to 10, 10 being awesome, one being horrible, and you say a seven, and then I ask you the same question again tomorrow when you say an eight, I know you feel marginally better, right? This works really well for social research. Hey, Carrie, uh, you, do you believe that Donald Trump will be reelected in November? Strongly agree to strongly disagree. There's nothing at stake for you. You can answer that in, in total honesty. But if you have a micromanaging boss and the engagement survey is around, how much do you like coming into work? Oh, 10. I love coming into work. Is your, is your boss fair? Oh, 10. Really, really fair. Because they're not stupid. You know, pe people lie for all sorts of reasons, right? We, we lie to save face. We lie to protect ourselves. And sometimes we lie when we know when we're lying. So what we did is we developed a process. We call it our quad model where you can actually get to the truth in a way that, that affords you an understanding of the emotional intelligence of people in your organization. So you can scale and understand inclusion really easily. Because inclusion isn't just a word, it gets used as a word in the echo chamber, but inclusion is about civility, inclusion is about empathy, inclusion is about compassion, about openness to differences. And so using our model, we can actually give you metrics for all those things. And because it's not a psychometric test, you can actually get better at all the stuff that you're not doing great at. So you can le leverage the tool to hire better, to form teams better, to promote better, to lead better, to develop your people better and drive a culture where people want to stay and can thrive. When, when we do this stuff, just again, like a crapshoot, really hope things work, throw it at the wall, hope they stick. We end up in the same place we've been for 30 years, you know, mm -hmm. saying we're doing the work and not really doing anything. Yeah. That's exactly what, um, you know, why we're here right now, honestly, is to have this conversation so we don't do that. Um, it's such a dangerous thing for organizations to look away for a second and just, you know, move on to the next whatever. And, you know, we've had so many huge events happening in organizations right now. Work is going to fundamentally change just from your perspective. How do you think work will be different? I mean, if you just look at all these different uh, components of what's happening in the world, the pandemic, remote work, uh, everything in terms of social justice, me too, all of it, like we have to change. Like there is no way that we are in any kind of new normal, nor will there be one in my mind. I think we're, uh, we've got a long, long way to go to actually bring humanity back into how we work together. What do you think that's gonna look like? Alan, can I speak to that super quick? Please do. And then you can jump in. Please do. Because um, as soon as you asked the question, there was something burning in my head. Um, <laughs> for, for every one sensory neuron that we have that brings information in, you got 10 to 100 that assort that information on the inside. So for the most part, your brain is talking to itself. And it's designed that way so we have a degree of equilibrium. So we're not always going, oh my God, that's different and this is different. It's kind of, it, it brings the information in a way we can manage it. But there's a, a bit of a failing in it too because self-protection is one of our baseline instincts. And because we want to stay safe, we generally go worst case scenario. Mm -hmm. And, and, and so how we interpret into, from a communications perspective, if I'm in front of you and say you write a report for me and, and I'm talking to you and you say, oh, thanks. 
I'm going to get all sorts of stuff, body language, inflection, facial expression, all of those things that will help me make sense. You go, oh, you appreciate what I gave you. If you're my boss and I write an important report I spent six hours on and you send me back an email that says thanks, that could be anything from thanks to thanks. <laughs> and my brain's going to do a whirlwind on the inside, particularly if the context between you and I is not safe. So what you are going to find is leaders better figure out how to work at remote, yeah. uh, how to support people via remote. Um, trust is earned. It is not just afforded. So when we have this distance, like we were designed for, for touch, for, for all of this sensory stuff. And if you, you know, if you piss me off in a meeting, if we're sitting around the water cooler or having a coffee, a lot of that ebbs, you know, it, it eases off a little bit. If we start talking about the movie I saw, it eases off. But if we don't work together and you make me angry in a meeting and I'm just going to sit in my house and stew over it. So the importance of leaders in their ability to manage remotely and then also filter in those power dynamics too. Because they're not going away. They're just, they're just going to become more and more important. Thank you. Alan, did you want to add anything? No, that, it's hard to follow that. I, I, <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> I, yeah, that was good. You know, you asked how work is changing. One thing that I've had to really understand myself is how rapid that change is happening. And it's like live time narrative unfolding. Um, and people's experiences are what, are what, um, they know. So we need to figure out what are the ways that we can make this, um, for many of us, new way of working. As I like how you said it earlier, the, you know, what, where it makes sense to work, um, work for everyone. And that means not only the folks that do the programmatic work, but the folks that do the operations work. So often it's those folks that are behind the scenes paying the bills and making sure the payroll gets in on time. Okay, well, what do those folks need um, to be successful so that we are making sure that not only do we get paid, which is the privileged um, way of thinking about it, but to make sure that they themselves are, are gratified and feeling the success of what they spend most of their personal time doing, which is working. Um, and I would say that it takes three C's, curiosity, courage, and connection, um, to really think about these things as much as possible on a daily basis. I'm curious about what the platforms are that we should use now that we're all working from home. I'm curious about how we communicate um, most effectively about what our experiences are in using them. Some of them are new. Some of us are really not as um, equipped to use them as others. Um, I'm, I'm having the courage to ask questions about this um, as a leader and not just assuming that people are just gonna keep on keeping it on and it'll just be um, what it is or somehow magically their work will get done. So I wanna make sure that I'm you know, asking those questions, having that curiosity and doing it um, as much as possible and yeah, sometimes that does take courage. It also takes a lot of time, which is something that, you know, I find we need to build in. Um, and that's, you know, the third C, um, having the, the connection with people to really figure out what they need 
Um, and also through what we were talking about before, the power of observation, um, which is harder for me at least. Um, I'm a um, being that builds gatherings and brings people together for trainings. And so how are we learning from folks in terms of what they need from a distance? Um, takes a lot of asking questions, takes a lot of um, Zoom or whatever your platform of choice is. Um, and it takes a lot of being in touch with the fact that we as leaders need to sometimes impose um, opportunities for people to actually have downtime to think about it. Um, I know myself to know that the last, let's see, the Opportunity Agenda's office closed mid-March. Um, we're based in New York. New York was at the time about to be at the center of the pandemic. Um, and my staff, mostly New Yorkers, um, we're not only trying to figure out all those, you know, how do we be productive questions and answers for their work purposes, but as, as Lino said earlier, they were in the middle of trauma that was starting to unfold around them, some of them personally affected by COVID-19. Mm -hmm. And so how do I as a leader acknowledge that? And what do I do? Um, and this, come, this is where Erica, who I mentioned before, our director of um, HR and operations comes in. We really sat together, not literally, on the phone, and try to figure out what does that look like by way of supports. So we figured out how to offer more sick days to people if they, um, God forbid, came down with the virus. We, we figured out how to make sure that we are um, changing our work schedule so that now every Friday, and I don't remember when I decided to do this, but now it feels like quite some time ago, we close at two o'clock in the afternoon to give people downtime that they wouldn't maybe otherwise have. We ask questions of folks that are personally taking care of their family members, whether it's their children or their parents, um, what more they think they need so that they can sustain it, realizing that those parents and those children are uh, under the same roof that they are. And a lot of times, if you're living in New York, that means a two-room apartment. Um, so lots of things to really be more thoughtful about. And in the moment, thoughtful can sometimes be challenging when work is like drinking out of a fire hose and we're all trying to keep up with our deliverables. Um, but it's imperative that that's, that's how we approach it. And as Lino, you said, I think this is gonna be whatever, I can't stand the phrase new normal. Um, I don't really know what that means, but I think that's gonna be, you know, what we need to build muscle mass for because I think our, our work systems are gonna be dependent on this in new ways um, and the future is here, right? Um, that this is the way, as you pointed out, um, Carrie, um, it makes sense to work. Right now in this moment of trauma, tragedy, and difficulty in ways that are incredibly pronounced, whether it's because of the virus or because of um, the uprising in support of um, more just policing in our country. Um, and it's gonna be like this uh, when that quote calms down uh, as well. So I would just say, you know, those things and, that, and those things are really important for I think those of us that are responsible leaders um, to remember. I can see that, you know, one of the things that's so challenging for everybody is that we have to redesign it while it's happening. So, you know, we can't, well, everything is in flight and we hear this from everyone that we work with is that I still have to do everything I did, but now I also have to <laughs> completely change everything that we're doing. And so, you know, I think the other thing that's really interesting about this, you know, great reset is that now we're, we've blurred the line between life and work. I don't think that's going to change. Uh, I think creating those boundaries and barriers and 
how we work through our own well-being as people is going to become increasingly important. Like it is personal, you know, you can't leave your problems at home because you are at home and you are working. <laughs> and so those challenges, I think, are really what's going to face us. Um, thank you both so much. I'm going to kick off the other panel here. You all, uh, you're both just incredible humans, uh, incredible leaders, and are doing a whole world of good for our world that really needs you. So thank you both so much. I don't have enough gratitude in just words to say it, but know that it's there. Um, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you Absolutely. so much. Happy to do it. Thank you for your leadership. Too. And they're going to stay on to answer some questions here later in the panel. So if anybody does have questions um, for both Lino and Alan, please feel free to share those. Amanda Herring, uh, who's going to come off mute, I'm going to hand it over to you for us to continue learning and get some actionable ideas to help all the workplace leaders out there to talk about what we just started talking about. Uh, in terms of what does this great reset really look like and what should we do as it relates to work and talent and culture and technology and all these different areas where it's all affected, the whole system is affected. So uh, without further ado, thank you panelists uh, for joining us. I'm really excited to hear what you have to say. Have fun. Thanks, Carrie, and thank you so much, Lino and Ellen. Again, um, just super important dialogue and proud to be able to bring together an audience to hear it and um, listen and learn from it. So thank you. Uh, as Carrie said, so we're gonna get into um, how in the world we handle the world of work right now and what we do to reflect and learn and grow as people and as organizations um, and what that's going to look like for the future. So uh, as a reminder, each of our panelists will have about five to seven minutes to share their thoughts uh, around two very important questions, which are what we should be doing right now as leaders and organizations, and what's important for organizations to prepare now for the future and where we're headed. And then there is a bonus if they can include a few actionable ideas uh, right now too. So. Um, I'll very briefly introduce our panelists and leave it to them to give us their take. So to start us off, we have Shveta uh, Miglani. She is the Global Head of Learning and Development at Micron Technology, and she'll be the first on the virtual stage. Uh, coming from a, a very large global organization, Shveta, uh, what's your take on now in the future and uh, how are you giving people on such a large scale opportunities to learn and, and grow right now? Thanks, Amanda. That's a hard act to follow with Lino and Ellen. So uh, we'll try my best to keep everybody engaged. So uh, our company, Micron Technology, is really um, in 18 different countries. Uh, we have a global footprint. We have been in the industry for almost 42 years. So we've been there for a long time and we are actually a combination of hardware and software and of course professional staff. So when we look at our people, it's a combination and diversity of skill sets and ability to work and what they work on, the jobs that they have. It's really diverse there. With that in mind, it's very difficult to create one um, 
one way of working for us because we have factories and manufacturing. So we have people who need to be on the floor. What we're looking at is a very customized model as a company to make sure that um, you, when things like a pandemic hits, like what we had, um, I'm so proud to say that our company was one of the early ones to make sure that we were taking care of our employees, making sure we had a policy in place, uh, even asking people to work from home as early as um, right by the end of, I think by Feb is when uh, the, that decision was made, even before the counties made those decisions. So we were pretty much ahead of the curve when an event like this occurred. But when we think about the work of the future, we've been having several discussions on how do we manage such a large company with a diverse workforce, with diverse needs of working and have a customized solution for all. So at this point as a company, what we're doing is we're opening up the dialogue and we're inviting ideas, scenarios and places that people can actually provide input um, and have that dialogue with us in the HR team with the leaders to discuss different ways of doing this, uh, whether that's either working from home or getting flexible working hours or finding a position in a different location if that needs to happen. Now, I would love to get on the, uh, you know, the train that says anybody can work from anywhere. Absolutely. My job gives me that option. But when we think of a company as large as ours, with different job roles, that's not always completely 100% possible. So instead of giving one uh, way of doing it versus other, we're creating a balanced approach and making sure that all the job roles, the job functions are looked at and the best possible solution is um, actually made possible for all these folks. Now, the other piece of this other pillar that I think is so important is technology. I think that's a very important piece if you want to start working um, in, a, in a remote setting or letting people work from anywhere in the world um, and also having more engaged discussions and more collaborations. Um, so exactly the way you guys are framing this panel and having these discussions with somebody taking notes in an amazing, colorful manner um, and also having those discussions, that's the kind of learning that's required by people who might not even be used to using Zoom or other platforms. So we need to make sure that the understanding of technology, the availability of technology, and the embracing of technology happens along with all the different aspects of working from home. The first rule of uh, Zoom Club is you take yourself off mute before you start talking. So uh, <laughs> I was going to uh, just follow up because I, I think you brought up a great point about um, having balanced solutions in this new work world. And something that I think is really difficult for leaders to contend with right now is that idea of fairness in all of these different situations. So um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about how you're finding that balanced approach and some of the ideas that maybe you're throwing around or um, the idea of testing solutions across the board um, instead of just implementing policies because things change constantly now. Yeah, that, that's a very tough question to answer. Um, I think we're still learning. I think that we are coming from a strong intent of making it fair and safe. 
and correct for everyone in our in our company and that's a hard one to answer because once you are learning as a collective then you realize when you're working with diverse backgrounds needs cultures companies expectations uh, sorry functions i didn't mean companies functions then it's hard to have one approach and i think that's why when i get back to the balanced approach once again that's the reason we are taking time or any other companies taking time to make it correctly now i know what happens is when we have the popular companies um, out there either on linkedin or in different platforms making some really large claims which is great because they have a certain group of people which is mainly the majority of the people that they can work from anywhere in the world and that works for them really well and i'm actually proud of seeing that and i applaud them for taking that big decision but in our now world the reality is much different uh, because of those differences and i know i'm repeating repeating myself what we do with our policies and our testing is the fast iteration we are not saying we are hell bent on this versus that what we're saying is we want to try it out be patient with us and work with us in this area that's one piece of it the other piece of it is even before going in that direction is benchmarking looking at what's out there so one thing that i'm really proud about at micron is we just don't take uh, decisions like this we make sure at least on the hr fr uh, frameworks in the practices and the policies that we're looking at is to really do in-depth analysis um and looking at some model behaviors could we do predictive analysis using our own data internally to make those decisions um i know that there's always things like how can we provide commuter options to folks um how do we know that well let's look at the demographic data of where people are located and is there a possibility to give them that commuter option so it's things like these that we are always researching looking at very closely i think one aspect of being part of hr is just don't think that you've set a policy and that's end all and be all you need to be flexible you need to make sure that you're making decisions quickly but then also be ready to take that feedback because our employees have a voice and we want to make sure that they all have a chance to um just tell us what they think will help them to be the most productive in their role yes such a good point you need to know what they need in order to fulfill the need so thank you so much, Feta. Really super important points. And um, we talk about that all the time. Um, you got to know what, what you don't know. All right. So uh, Kevin, you are next up on our rapid fire panelist talk. So Kevin Grossman is the uh, president and board member of uh, Talent Board. And so Kevin, thank you so much for being here. I know your organization uh, is hyper-focused and um, intimately understands candidates and the candidate experience. So uh, what's going on in that world right now and what in the world can we predict for the future? So can't predict the future, can't do it. <laughs> Never could do it before, sure can't do it now, right? So <laughs> I wanna give some context first. So for over just over the past nine years, we've been, uh, we've worked with over a thousand employers, over a million candidate responses in our survey research. And every year what we're helping to measure is what that experience is from before I even apply for a job, 
all the way through those who actually get the offer and are hired, which we know is a very small percentage of all those who apply for jobs at any given organization, big and small across industries. And we measured this primarily in nothing but a growth market for nine years, right? It's month after month job growth. It was, um, you know, decades of the lowest unemployment we've seen. And then this. So let's talk about now, because besides the World Health Organization and the CDC and other healthcare organizations, who plans for a pandemic, right? So everybody, the, the breaks, everybody, all the employers, most employers put, put the breaks on. Unfortunately, millions of, of hourly workers and, pro, and professionals as well and management even, we know the numbers, right? Everybody's lost their job. The thing that companies have been doing now, or at least the ones that, um, that more of the progressive ones and understand it, even if they've completely halted hiring, communicate, communicate, communicate. Even if I don't know what's gonna to happen tomorrow or the next hour for that matter, right? So we know we've encouraged companies and it's encouraging to hear from organizations in what I'll call our candy community. Candy being affectionately short for candidate experience. That's what we've been known as for a long time as the candies. And the companies that are communicating with their, with their candidates as well as their employees. Now this includes those companies and, and in our kind of ongoing polling that we've done and survey research on the side, besides the benchmarks that we do around candidate experience, only about a third of companies have been posting something on their career sites that say, this is how, this is what's happening right now. We're not hiring right now. We're on a hiring freeze. We're only hiring for essential workers. Um, this is what, how we're helping our community right now. Um, so it's good to see that at least some companies are doing that, but not a lot. So that's one way to communicate. About two thirds of companies that we've been in our community that we've been talking with, they're communicating publicly with their cu customers, for example, right? So a lot of consumer-based organizations there, and especially travel and leisure that have been decimated. If any of you have done, do any regular ongoing work travel, you've been getting the notes from your airlines, from the hotels that you frequent. This is what we're doing. This is what we're doing. This is what we're doing. And that's important, right? So the communicating with your candidates, communicating with your customers, and then especially communicating with your employees, this is what we're doing. We, we, we have to do these layoffs. We have to furlough some of you at this, at this point in time. We don't know what's going to happen next. We hope that we can bring you back. And um, so that, and about three quarters of the companies that we've been surveying in the past few months, they're actually, they are doing that. There's a regular communication with their employees and with their candidates. So that's the, the, the big part of now, right now, as, because here's the thing, we have no idea what is going to happen next. And I keep hearing this phrase, if you want to talk, talk about future looking a little bit, if, Post-COVID, we're going to do this, and post-COVID, we're going to do that. There is no post-COVID, right? It's, it, I just don't, it's just not that way at all. We're, this is going to be, it, it's constantly a continuing different world. And just this very important first part of this panel discussion that we just had on what's going on in our world today of social injustice and racism and the, the uh, police brutality and things. I grew up in law enforcement. And a very conservative family. I know I'm a, I'm a white male and white privilege, but the, and, and companies now are being asked to the test, 
where are you on this, on this situation right now with Black Lives Matter? Where, and candidates are demanding that and their employees are demanding that. Where do you take a stand? So it's like, it's all the things at once, right? And it's, but it's exciting too, I think it is. I mean, it's, we have no idea. I don't know if my firm, you know, if, if, we, if we survive this year, that's great. Are we gonna be here next spring? I hope so, I hope we're still doing this research. But I think for a lot of organizations right now, the best that they can do is scenario planning. What happens if, if these are the things that are gonna happen in the next three, six, nine months with our recruiting and hiring, then these are the resources that we need. These are the technologies that we need. Great, what about if, if these scenarios happen? What if there is a vaccine sooner than later? How's that going to impact then our recruiting and hiring globally or if not locally on a local level? Um, are they planning to, are they redeploying employees as best they can so they don't have to furlough them? What are, where are we gonna do with that? How are we going to bring people back into the office that are actually willing to come back to an office? What capacity does that look like? Because by the way, there are um, many uh, there are, uh, employees that are refusing to come back because they don't feel like it's unsafe or their health risks. Or those of us who have children, right? We have two girls, nine and 11, that even though it's summertime, come this fall in school is going to be a different world. We may have a couple of days a week in class with smaller groups, and then we're going to be at home again, distance learning, right? My wife and I are more used to that, but there's so many families that we know that aren't used to that. How are companies accommodating for that at the same time? So when it comes to the future and looking ahead, it's, you re that's the best that we can do right now is planning for these different scenarios and how we're going to address those. And if we're going to start hiring again, what, what is the, the resources and the technologies that we need, not only today, but for tomorrow? And I'm ch checking on my time right now. So we're ne it's never going to be post-COVID. And I do really truly hope that uh, at the end of the day, this is truly the beginning of global social justice and change, very much so. So that's what I'll leave you all with right now. <laughs> Thanks, Kevin. Um, and you brought up a, a really good point that if you could give me a quick response to, you know, you mentioned that candidates and employees expect their organizations and their leaders to have a, a response right now to yeah. make their stance clear. And I think that's really obviously going to impact current employment and the candidates who are drawn to organizations in the future. So it's complicated. What's the best thing that they can do right now? if they aren't the Ben and Jerry's of the world, if they don't know exactly where they stand, if they have you know, work to do as, as many do. Have, I mean, um, I like the three C's, right? That was, that was brought up mm -hmm. earlier too. That I, I have the courage to have the conversations right now. I mean, we don't, you may not have all the answers, you may be, but be, be as transparent as you possibly can as a business, whether you're a nonprofit, for-profit, public sector, private, whatever that is, be as transparent as you can day to day at, with your employees, with your candidates, and at least have that conversation at the end of the day. You, that's, that's what my recommendation is. Awesome. Thank you, Kevin. Appreciate it. Okay, so Carrie. Oh, that was a high five, not a hand raise. Okay. <laughs> 
Um, all right, so Jesse, you are up next. Um, Jesse Tinsley is the CEO and founder at Job Mobs, and he's also the host of a popular podcast called The People Podcast. So, um, Jesse, I know you have quite a bit of interest in the intersection of people at work and technology, and so specifically wanted to get your thoughts on our current state, our future not post-COVID, just what it's going to be, uh, mashup of all the things, um, and how that's kind of coming to life in, in your world. Totally. We're definitely in an unprecedented time. Uh, for starters, I've never imagined myself being in my car <laughs> presenting to people uh, virtually from this, from this perspective of, you know, six months ago. So things have changed monumentally. And I think what companies focus on in the short term is three things. Um, DNI, I think it's been long overdue to have a point of emphasis and a more overt focus. Uh, I think Ellen and Leo touched uh, really in depth on that, so I don't really need to go too in depth there. I think the second part is basically employee, employee wellness and how do we lead with empathy um, with everything that's going on, whether it's social injustices or COVID-19 illnesses, layoffs. Uh, people that are parents that are working from home, there's also basically don't lose sight of the struggles of everyone in your workplace right now. I think that's a really, really big focus um, that HR teams and practitioners can help basically uh, align the executive team on. Um, and then thirdly, I think there's going to be a big focus and shift on streamlining and automation of mundane processes within the workplace. Um, and that's not to say that we're going to replace we're not replacing employees. I don't think that's the goal of, at all from an HR recruiting perspective. Um, we're basically empowering employees to do their best work through automation and technology. And I think that's gonna be a big focal point in the next, I think obviously with remote work and flex work, that's already happened monumentally in the last couple months, but even more so in the next two to five years. Um, so I think that's a big one and I think in the future, I think that remote work probably isn't here to stay as much as it's been advertised. I think that finding the equilibrium of flex work, of what works best for your team, whether that's remote work, distributed teams, on-site, or a mix of both. And so, yeah, that's kind of the quick overview of what I think the future of work and what we should be focused on. Thanks, Jesse. Yeah, you, you mentioned, and Shveta mentioned this too, the importance of taking care of your people. And that obviously starts with understanding what they need from you in order to be well in the bigger meaning of that word. So um, what are some other ways that tech can help us take better care of one another in the workplace um, as leaders and as colleagues? Yeah, so, so I think, just doing general, like one of the big things that we've been doing uh, with my own team members and I've seen other companies do as well, is basically just doing check-ins, one-on-ones uh, virtually, um, even setting up like different things that you can do to kind of build camaraderie. And uh, normally you're doing team events throughout the year. Uh, so we've been doing different like game nights and things like that. I, there's a lot of things you could do to basically improve overall wellness and check in on people. And I think just, yes, lead with empathy in general that's a huge point of emphasis right now more than anything. Yep, for sure. Connection. <laughs> Definitely. Awesome. 
All right, thank you so much, Jesse. Appreciate that, appreciate your take. Um, so next uh, we have Jennifer McClure. Hi, Jennifer. Uh, she is the CEO of Disrupt HR. Um, some of you may know that name. Uh, I've actually known and Carrie's actually known Jennifer for a bit now in our work with Disrupt HR and hosting those events in our communities. So um, Jennifer, obviously you have your eye on disruption always and we're clearly in a huge time of exactly that. Um, so what are the, the skills and abilities that you need to lead uh, in and through challenging times? Sure, well thanks for the opportunity to be here and I've enjoyed learning from everyone so far. I think as I've been kind of listening, um, I think it's, it may be helpful. I have a perspective that might be unique in that I am a solopreneur as a full-time professional speaker and, and a leadership coach. And I'm all, you know, and my company is called Unbridled Talent. And I'm also the chief excitement officer of Disrupt HR, which is a global organization where uh, individuals such as, you know, Living HR can license the opportunity to put on Disrupt HR events in their communities. And so that involves over 400 people, um, typically leaders in their communities around the world who are, are hosting these Disrupt HR events and getting people involved to share their ideas with the world. Um, so I've been kind of pushed and pulled in a lot of ways as, as a person whose business went, uh, my speaking business went to zero uh, for 2020 and beyond in about two weeks. And so thinking about, okay, how do I, as a leader of my own business, and maybe many of you are small business leaders, think about using this time um, both to prepare myself to come out of this stronger and better in the future, but also at the same time, what do I do? You know, so um, I think for me, it's been really helpful as a leader to really think about this. Okay, how can I use this time, as I said, to think stronger, better, bigger, whether it's post-COVID or as Kevin said, just life uh, in the new world. And I think a lot of our leaders really need to be, it's, it's been, you know, two to three months now. Uh, we're nowhere near through this yet, obviously, and it's still very exhausting and daunting. But if you have not yet as a leader or the leaders in your organization have not yet kind of started turning the corner to thinking about, oh my gosh, this is happening, to now thinking about, how are we going to use this time to make our organization and our teams and our people better? Um, because obviously you probably have time uh, available now that you had planned to be doing other things. Uh, on the other hand, you may be spending more time doing some things you had totally not intended. Um, but really keeping that focus on with what we know now, what are we doing to make ourselves better in the future? And I also, in, in my coaching role of working with leaders, really reminding them and kind of uh, bringing back to the forefront, if it hasn't really been brought to their attention already, what are the values of your organization? Because the values of your organization are truly important at all times, but in a time of crisis, which is, is a crisis, um, you've got to first turn back to those. So every communication that you send out, every decision that you make, and we've seen some companies do this really well and some companies that maybe have failed and part of either their communications or the decisions that they've made, if you look at their core values, those th things don't align. 
I know Airbnb got a lot of praise for their communication about how they are moving forward with some difficult decisions around layoffs and et cetera. And the communication that was shared from their CEO about how they rolled that out to their employees was highly praised. And a lot of it was referencing how they had made those decisions from their values. So decisions that were costly to the company in a lot of respects about making sure that they pay people for a certain period of time that they're laying off, that they continue their benefits, that the new hires that they weren't going to be able to bring on, that they gave them a salary for a period of time. All of those were reflective of their values. And so it might be difficult to make decisions in some cases to spend more money to do something, but if you are reinforcing the values, it's going to pay off by building trust and respect and loyalty of both your people and your customers who say are able to say that when the going got tough, you didn't turn away from your values and go straight to profit or to something um, that maybe you've not been saying or is not on the laminated card that you carry in your wallets. So for leaders, it's really important now, if more than ever, to keep those values of your organization uh, in the forefront. And then also to make sure that if there, if there are values on there that are no longer relevant or that need to be, um, if you need to add new ones because you realize that maybe something is missing, that you do that thoughtfully. You know, it's not just like, oh, we're going to take this off now because that doesn't make sense. You know, let's be thoughtful. And so also kind of moving that thought into, you know, with Disrupt HR, which is a global organization that, you know, I'm the chief excitement officer, but really I'm a volunteer with the organization who is supporting volunteer organizers around the world. So uh, I've made some mistakes there as a leader of that organization that I'll share with you and maybe in being helpful. Uh, right away, we had events that had to be canceled, you know, starting the second week of March. It was just one after another. I think we had about 100 events scheduled for April and May, and just one after another, events were coming in, cancel, postpone, cancel, postpone. And so I sent a communication kind of saying, hey, here's what we'll do. We'll pause any licensing renewals. We'll do, we don't want you to have to be paying money for events that you're not going to be able to hold, uh, et cetera. And, you know, here's how we you know, want to support you through that. And that was well received. Uh, but then questions started coming in about, uh, you know, virtual events and can we do this? And, and I think, you know, I have not been able to be as responsive as I should be. So my advice to leaders is to communicate often, frequently. So one communication up front, you know, a lot of our CEOs have come out or companies or brands have had this big, you know, communication about, you know, the situation with coronavirus and now with Black Lives Matter and, and all the kind of challenging things that we're going through. But I would encourage your leaders and you as leaders to continue to communicate the message again and again and again. Continue to make yourself available for question and answer. To be personally uh, communicating as much as possible. It's one thing to send something in writing, even if your company is a 10,000 or a 100,000 person organization. It's another thing to use Zoom or to do something where they can see your face. I know one of the most impactful messages that I've seen through this has been from the Marriott CEO, who from the beginning kind of shared, you know, both his hurt and his sadness, and he's also going through cancer treatments at this time. He got a little teary-eyed in his messaging. It was all very authentic, and that went a long way, I think, for both the employees and the customers of Marriott. 
So those are just some things that I've learned as a solopreneur, as a coach, and as a leader of a global organization. So hopefully those are helpful to you. Thank you so much, Jennifer. Yeah, and your, your note on values, I think they, we are seeing when values have been borrowed from someone else's wall <laughs> in an office they walked into, and um, when they really get put to the test, uh, like when COVID first hit, um, whether or not you truly care about your people, whether you have integrity, um, you know, whether you're collaborative, whether you trust each other, all those things, all those words uh, that are commonly used in, in value sets. And, um, you know, I think that we've seen a shift in whether or not those mean anything um, and the need for them to truly be authentic to your culture and your organization in order for them to do anything for you. Yeah. Consultants have always told us, you know, you need to use your values and decision-making, but this is where the rubber hits the, the road. When you are making a decision, are you reviewing those against your values first before you communicate right. and finalize the decision? This is a good exercise and why that's important. Yep, absolutely agree. Thank you, Jennifer. Okay, so our last panelist is Jody. And um, she is the head of human resources at Smule. And Smule is a very fun global company. It's the number one social singing app. And um, it's been on a really fast growth path. Um, and I, I know while that's been happening, uh, you've been focused on employee well-being and taking care of one another at this time and putting empathy to work while also finding some levity in the day-to-day. -day. And it's you know part of your DNA as a brand and an organization. So tell us a little bit about what that looks like for you lately and how you pull all those things together. Oh, and I'm sorry, I skipped Renee, but I'll, I'll come right back to you, Renee. <laughs> Oh, Jyoti, you're on uh, mute. Uh, sorry about that. Uh, hey, thank you so much. Uh, I'm also a mom to a three-year-old now. Uh, and nowadays, my second profession is to make stop-motion movies of the toy parades, as my son loves to put his toys in a long line. And he always requests me to sh um, actually say that that is my profession as well. So I am um, kind of addressing his request here. I'm stoked to be here with all the wonderful speakers. And I'm really enjoy I really enjoyed learning from Alan and Dr. Lino and all others. And and uh, looking forward to hear from Renee as well. In terms of what we are doing at SMULE and um, what I feel that other organizations should do, I think um, as um, other speakers have mentioned, uh, times are hard right now, and many of us are feeling anger, pain, fear, uncertainty, and loneliness. And uh, prioritizing employee well-being by offering bundle of options to cater to individual physical, emotional, and financial well-being and mental health that is something that can be really useful and helpful for employees. Uh, I think we need to keep in mind that um, a strategy that respects that everyone's wellness journey is different and acknowledges that one solution may not work for all can be really transformative for a company to engage employees. At SMEWL, we are offering Headspace uh, for meditation and Task Human for weekly Zoom and Learn session. And then we also have a Gym Pass wellness subscription uh, for employees who like to work out and I think having a comprehensive strategy that takes care of all aspects of employee well-being is really important right now. 
Second, I think I would like to say that as uh, others have mentioned as well, leadership needs to practice more empathy and vulnerability right now. We expect our employees to bring their full selves to work so that we can all benefit from the passion, engagement, and creativity. That's only possible when we are real with each other. And also with remote work, um, the boundaries have blurred and people are sharing more about their personal situation with each other. And with that sharing comes uh, an expectation of caring. And it's more important for leaders to practice compassion and humanity by actively listening and building genuine connections. Some of the ways that we are doing and we feel others can do is by doing regular check-ins with employees and offering them flexibility and ownership to design their own work schedule. It's time to walk the walk and not just say that we offer flexible schedule and then don't, don't lead by example. It's also a time to set uh, examples so that employees are comfortable doing that themselves and encouraging them to regularly take breaks and time off for self-care. I think leaders who will adopt this mindset right now will be better prepared to engage employees for the long term. I also feel the last two, three months of lockdown have transformed our workplaces. And we, as we have made giant leaps forward in terms of digital transformation and rethinking our workplace, and as we are opening up and some of us are going back to the offices, I think we all should take a pause and look at what practices or activities we would like to see not coming back and what we would like to see develop and focus more. For example, uh, I think working through remote, we have seen then how utilizing both synchronous and asynchronous mode of communication to encourage participation from everyone, including those who are shy to um, actually voice their opinions in team settings can work so well and people who are working through different time zone. I think we should continue to leverage on that and be more inclusive in our communication. Second, I feel by acknowledging that many employees may want to continue to work from home or may move to less costlier cities from, uh, you know, they might, may want to move to some other area than Bay Area or New York. And hence, maybe it's time to relook at some of our HR policies like compensation philosophy to see it should be focused more on national salary average to pay based on employee contribution versus a regional local approach to based on cost of living and as many employer companies will allow remote or distributed work arrangement i think it's a great chance and great uh, time to tap on the markets that have more diverse talent available and changing our policies that may offer good work-life balance for working parents lastly i would like to, i would like to say as jesse mentioned work isn't about work only we need to have continuous avenues to have some fun as well and we all are social by nature and nothing can replace in real life interaction but till we can have such live gathering we should continue to focus on organizing you know um, maybe regular virtual happy hours coffee lunches across teams sing together or talent shows if that works for the team and virtual escape rooms or video games. But we need to be careful that we are not over-engineering this from an HR perspective. There has to be a good balance of ideas that are more organic and bubbling up. And then we have some HR run programs. I think this is not the time when we are leading from the ivory tower. It's time when everyone can set the agenda and that will actually make more meaningful connections and interactions. From the future perspective, I totally echo uh, Kevin's sentiment that you know somebody who can uh, really perfectly predict what is gonna be in five or 10 years and how the world of work will look like, uh, I think is either overconfident or a visitor from future. However, based on the trends that we are seeing, uh, we can extrapolate some of the things that how it will look like. Uh, I think it looks I think it will look like it will be more flexible, multi-model with more focus on productivity outcomes than on nine to five schedule. 
and will be more welcoming and supporting for diverse workforce. One other thing that I think COVID-19 has compelled us to think is how the workforce can be reskilled from one sector to another sector. And as technology's impact on job became apparent, it has also accelerated the need to fill the skill gap and prepare a more cross-functional and flexible for workforce. So I think it will be great to have an AI-enabled platform that keeps a skill inventory and interest of employees and environment where employees can have opportunities to have more varied across team projects and that will help them gain the cross-functional knowledge. I think it's time for organizations to be more resilient and flexible than efficient. And regular focus on remote learning that is self-paced with micro lessons and is accessible anytime, anywhere can actually um, be a key differentiator for employees to be really engaged and to be really feeling as if they, their job is meaningful um, and can actually engage them. So this is, um, this is what I wanted to share. I'm happy to answer if there are any questions. Thank you, Jyoti. Yeah, we, um, I just had one follow-up question and um, we'll do the, the Q&A after Renee brings us home. Um, but you, you, know, you mentioned that shift from uh, efficiency to flexibility and that kind of being more of a metric of success for how you're, you're treating your people um, and what the experience is like. So how does that uh, come to be in an organization that has been in growth mode currently in growth mode or will be lucky enough to be in growth mode um, soon? So I think for growth mode companies like us, uh, there's always a need for more talent. We are always learning from community and changing how can we be better, how we can um, improve our user interface. And I think that creates a great platform and a, um, for employees to be more curious and to learn new things, to uh, understand how they can do differently and achieve more impact. And um, that's why, I and many of us are nowadays, even if you're in HR or in product or in our operations, I think people are more successful when they have across department experience because then they can understand how the other function works and they can actually do more consolidated view and uh, approach it more um, in a more holistic way. So I think um, that's how we are doing. And I think organization, it's very important to know and to understand the skills of the employees that you have and where the interest lies and then giving them the opportunities and asking them what they would like to work on and making sure that you are giving them those opportunities to work on because it's not it's not that what you what organization want them to work on is actually it's very engaging for them they everybody nowadays more than ever wants to grow and wants to learn something new and giving them those opportunities and taking uh, and giving them flexible to take their time out and work on those side projects that they would like to do is the, the most meaningful way that you can engage and retain your employees and your talent. Thank you so much for that perspective and, and all your thoughts, Jyoti, really appreciate it. Okay, so Renee, I swear I did not forget about you. I blame the weather, I'm working from home, it's pouring, lightning, things are happening. Uh, but <laughs> thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Renee Agler is the HR director at Baker McKenzie and uh, Baker McKenzie is one of the top and largest global law firms in the world. And they recently did a huge global transformation and Renee helped lead some of the people function out of North America. So 
um, Renee, what is going on with you right now? Um, and what are you guys currently talking about? And how are you even starting to talk about where you're going from here? Thank you, Amanda. And yes, it is it is getting dark and it's stormy at my house too. So, uh, okay. so I will do my best to bring us all home and get us through this storm. Um, but talking about storms, I mean, honestly, this time is like on any other time, and at least in my leadership journey. Um, and so it's really about how do we take advantage of leading through this time and really leveraging it as an opportunity to create a more inclusive world and getting through it by navigating the headwinds that we're all facing today. And, you know, given the time that we're in, we, we continue to hear the words unchartered, uncertain, unprecedented. And, you know, one of the things that we continually talk about as a leadership team at Baker is how do we move from those negative words to more positive words. And so when I think about what organizations can do differently, when you think about the more positive words, it's recover, resilience, renewal. Um, and so when I think about recovery and how do we get out of the social injustice situation that we're in, we really do need organizations who have leaders that create an environment where employees really feel empowered and free to talk to any level of employee, despite uh, if it's a senior leader at the firm or a, you know, a, a, a more junior uh, employee at the firm, but really can talk openly and candidly without negative consequences. And once they feel and they have the confidence that they can talk, it's really then making the time to listen to them. And by doing so, it will really, particularly those of us in leadership roles, it'll allow our eyes and ears to really be open to what the employees need, as well as what drives and motivates them. And in essence, and this is probably the total un-HR thing to say, um, but in essence, when you talk to them and you really listen, that really becomes your employee engagement survey. Um, especially if you take and implement some of their suggestions, they, one, that you've earned credibility with them because you've actually did listen, um, and they really feel valued. And if this is really done right, you really don't need an employee engagement survey. Again, a typical un-HR thing that you would expect out of an HR person. Uh, when you think about resilience, um, organizations really need leaders that allow themselves to be very vulnerable and authentic. And again, that is one of the things that I feel very privileged and honored to say that we value and we actually exhibit on a daily basis um, at Baker. Um, vulnerability is what really allows us to earn trust. So when you're in a leadership position and you can show that you can be vulnerable, you have the opportunity to really build credibility and trust with your employees. Employees also in turn really feel more comfortable coming to talk to you when you've shown that you can be vulnerable. And leaders who really cultivate an authenticity uh, about them and create an authentic environment actually more easily gain buy-in and participation when they when it comes to rolling out more inclusive programs and changes. When I think about renewal, um, leaders and organizations really should focus on inclusion and the diverse strengths of everyone on their team because this really opens the door for those more authentic conversations to occur and really provides more freedom for our employees to share their perspectives and to share their diverse ideas. And ultimately, 
when employees feel empowered to share their thoughts and ideas, they really become part of the collective solution where everybody can work toward a very common goal. And when I think about the future, um, like we heard earlier, you really can't predict the future. And my goodness, if we all could, we'd be millionaires and billionaires, I think. But, um, but when I do think about the future, I really think we're going to see more progressive actions as it relates to the advancements of AI and how that really shapes um, and can shapes the way we work and helps us create more efficiencies in the way we get work done. I think organizations will really be forced because of that to reimagine their business models. Um, and I think, you know, and we've touched on it quite often tonight, but I think you will see more flexibility in terms of working environments and working arrangements so that employees can really truly find the balance between their professional life as well as their personal life. However, the one caveat to that is I think we also need to find balance that we're ensuring that the flexible working environments aren't creating a sense of where people feel like they're being excluded. And we really need to be mindful of the potential negative impacts of Zoom. Again, you know, technology, we're all fortunate that we have the opportunity to have these video calls. But the flip side of that is people who, um, you know, might be, who, who might be part of the LGBT community, who might be struggling with coming out. Now through the Zoom, we're seeing a view of their home that they might not have been fully comfortable with us seeing. Um, and now because of Zoom and because of the flexible working environment, we have to, we're forcing them in essence to open up their home to us. So, you know, just keeping that in mind, granted, yes, Zoom is great and it still allows us the opportunity to feel connected, feel engaged, but we do have to think about that potential negative side of it as well. I think we will see changes where companies really truly do start to invest more in inclusion and diversity. Um, for example, I think we'll see more uh, leadership um, at, at the leadership tables. I think we'll see more diversity. I think we'll see more women, not only at leadership tables, but board of directors, executive committees. And these people, it won't just be a check the box exercise, like I think maybe it has been perceived in the past, but I think it will be truly qualified people who deserve that respect and deserve that seat at the table. Um, and of course, I mean, we all know that when we have changes like this, it really allows for better exposure to diverse opinions and a more versatile thought process. And in the end, I think any one of us could be able to sit here and say that when we have diverse teams, they really truly do outperform non-diverse teams as it relates to innovation, creativity, and decision-making. Um, and, you know, to kind of close it out, it's just, it's really unfortunate um, that the current pandemic and the current events that we're, that we're all experiencing right now have really forced companies to reevaluate re how they do business and to be more forward thinking, not only in how they get work done, but in how they hold everybody more accountable for inclusive leadership. But hopefully when we get to the other side of the tunnel and, or the other side of the light or um, when we see tomorrow, using the words uh, from earlier as well, hopefully through it all, the outcome will be worth it. And I guess my final takeaways for what I would share um, is again, you know, listen to your employees. It sounds so simple, but yet it's so often not done. Um, you know, I would also encourage people to develop that mindset for inclusive leadership. Diversity without inclusion is really not enough. Um, and lastly, I would say, you know, proactively prepare for what the new norm it will be and consider its impact on your operating and your business model.
And that's really it. Thank you. And that's it. Come on, Renee. Thank you so much. That was a great way to wrap up a lot of, um, you know, really important points and, and topics that everyone covered and really appreciate your perspective. Um, we're coming up on time, but we did have one question uh, that was directed from the beginning at uh, Lino and Ellen. And so we've talked a lot about you know, the state of things and what we can do, you know, as leaders and what we should be thinking about. But it seems like a lot of the feedback we've gotten is just this hesitancy to say the wrong thing, to do the wrong thing, to even start to have the conversations that we need to have in order to affect change. And so um, is there a particular method that you found that works to create that, the right dialogue, to create a safe space to even start to have the dialogue. What are your thoughts on that? I'll let you go first, Ellen. Sure, thanks so much for the question. And I'm conscious that I am one minute away with this answer from everyone, either going getting dinner on the East Coast or doing something else out West. So I'll be really, really quick. Um, the answer can be found on opportunityagenda.org. And I'm just gonna point to, um, I mentioned a system before and Lino is all about systems and so are we. We have a system, a formula that we recommend for communicating on hard topics. We um, use the acronym VPSA. VPSA um, stands for stating the value up front. And I loved how um, both Kevin and Jennifer weaving together what they said, mentioned the importance of communicating based in values. So starting with that value, um, then bringing up the problem, what's impeding the value from being able to be achieved. Um, move quickly to the solution um, that you would like people to focus on and always, always, always end it with an action. Um, that's something that we find works in any context of communication. We do training on this to prepare folks to be spokespeople. We've, we have a whole toolkit that we use around how we communicate based in VPSA on, as I said before, racism. We developed a toolkit around talking about equity in the context of COVID. Um, and finally, um, cleverly, a few years ago, one of our staff members put together a piece on how to have hard conversations over the Thanksgiving dinner table with family members use, using VPSA. So as you can probably tell, it works and we recommend it in whatever the context. We would be happy to download with whomever asked the question um, later if there are things that you would like to know in practice and how to use it more. Thank you so much. Um, you know, anything to add to that, right? And then we'll wrap it up. And uh, I just want to say, like, from the bottom of every bit of my heart, like, I am so grateful that you all were willing to have this conversation with us. And um, it's been an awesome use, I think, of everyone's time and uh, hopefully gives us a path forward. Lino, anything to add? I'd love to hear what you have to say to that. I'll just say super quick, uh, thank you uh, again, everybody, for, for having me. It's been a great panel. Um, th there's a lot of potential to harm uh, in, in these kinds of conversations. So at the, the very baseline, it's establishing safety. So, you know, in these conversations, know who you are, establish who you are, if you're the one leading it, facilitating it, and just be really clear about the boundary lines for folks that if there is discomfort, let us know we stop there 
and we move on to topics that we can actually make some progress on. Well said. Thank you, Lino. All right, we made it with two minutes over, which for any Living HR event, you know that is actually on time. So thank you all so much. Um, we have a lot of work to do. We'll do it together. And uh, let's keep uh, taking care of everyone, uh, all the people that need us, especially, obviously, uh, the Black men and women right now that need us, also the LGBT community, it's Pride Month, you know, I just, I really feel like it's important for everyone to uh, stand for something. Uh, you've got one shot in this life, and this life also blends into work, and so hopefully um, you'll, you'll take this as a little bit of a challenge to, to do more, do better, and try to have some fun along the way, bring some levity into life. Thank you all. Have a great day. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.